Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Welcome to Cybersecurity America. It's Joshua Nicholson here. I'm an exciting industry-focused episode this time. We're going to be focusing on cybersecurity risk management and communications within the C-suite, the board of directors, the CISO, and the CIO. We have a great guest here today, George Santos. Santos this is going to talk to us about that. He's also going to talk about his new book. But before that, we're going to pass this over to Aaron Bierlin and our partnership with Deep Seas for our threat intelligence report. Aaron? Thanks, Josh. For the couple of reports that have come across the Deep Seas Sea Desk, for the past week, it's primarily focusing on things like Patch Tuesday. So Patch Tuesday came out for the month of April, and there were several vulnerabilities that we had to take a look at from a CTI perspective to be able to prepare our clients for what might be coming down the pipe and what's going to be leveraged and what things were zero days that were already being actively exploited. The first one that I am going to highlight was CVE 2023-28252, which was an out-of-bound write vulnerability in Microsoft Windows that was being actively exploited, but it was being actively exploited by one ransomware group known as Nokoyawa. And Nokoyawa looks like they've been exploiting this potentially since about February. And then now Microsoft announced it, patches were rolled out. We haven't seen a lot of footprint for this particular zero day. And even though zero days do occur and we do see ransomware operators leveraging it, it's usually those publicly available vulnerabilities that we see ransomware operators going after. And specifically one of the one of the ones that we're looking at now that was also part of this Patch Tuesday release would have been what's now known as Q Jumper or CVE 2023-21554. This was rated as, if I remember correctly, it was a 9.8, and it has to do with Microsoft's message querying service, MSMQ. This is an RCE vulnerability, so the immediate response that we have is to be concerned about it being wormable and being able to see a wormable vulnerability being exploited by ransomware operators or ransomware operators, cyber criminals in general, or nation state APTs. This is something that we're concerned about. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that anyone is actively exploiting this. But when you look at a CTI program, especially when you want to look at how you can integrate and fuse with all of these other things like vulnerability management, the concern that we have from an intelligence perspective is how can the vulnerability be leveraged by a threat actor and then whether or not we start seeing that public exploitation. So we have one vulnerability we know was being exploited. It was a zero day. We have another one that we know now threat actors are absolutely going to want to exploit. And in the reporting that we did find, specifically with this Q jumper vulnerability, is there was a scan that was done by Checkpoint Research when they when they reported on this, where they found 360,000 IPs that were exposed to the internet running MSMQ and had the open TCP port 1801, which means that 
they could absolutely be targeted and leveraged with this vulnerability if an exploit had been or is created. That's just facing the public internet. That has nothing to do with people's internal networks. So a spear phishing email comes in with this exploit loaded onto it and they can then take care of it. So this is something that we want to focus with a lot with our clients and with our customers and with the general audience out there is understanding the ways that we try to prioritize these vulnerabilities in a world where everything's everything comes out, everyone wants to patch, but you have an operation you need to run. And how is it that you're going to be able to prioritize vulnerabilities? And the first way that we do that is look at what is currently being exploited by threat actors. And we focus on that. And then the next is trying to look at what is going to be that most viable exploitation we would see from a threat actor. And that would be things like these remote code execution vulnerabilities that are wormable. That makes it very simple, takes little user interaction. And then a threat actor can start moving laterally across that network, especially for an operation like ransomware. <clears throat> and so that's what we do over at the Deep Seas CTI when we fuse in with attack surface reduction and vulnerability management. And it's also the advice that we give to even those smaller businesses out there on how they can prioritize it with a small IT infrastructure or maybe even no IT infrastructure is get an idea of what types of threats are out there and figure out how to prioritize it to keep it away from things like your crown jewels in a way that doesn't interrupt your operations and obviously doesn't break the bank when you're trying to run a business. But pending any questions on that, that's what I have for our intelligence briefing today. Uh, I appreciate that, Aaron. I think this week has been exciting. We had when I had a client get hit with LockBit 3.0. We had to walk them through that one. And that was a nasty event there. One of the one of the interesting things I noticed here about this ransomware, the way they operated, they exploited a vulnerability on the Fortinet firewall and the SSL VPN services that were in support of it. So they were able to drop, they did a phishing attack, harvest user credentials, privileged access. And then did an exploit on the Fortinet. There were several versions behind. Nobody was keeping up with the patching. And then that gave attackers access to the inside of the network. And then you'd see slow, methodical, delete the backups, and then launch the ransomware after day two, three, and then towards the end of the week. So it's really interesting how some of the, when we walk through the root cause analysis for that attack, a lot of it really was just the basic hygiene stuff. Privileged access management, not using administrator accounts and high privileged accounts to check your email, not using that as another account used for backups. There's just a number of different failures just from that aspect. Now we use threat intelligence always to, to help see what the enemy and the attackers are using. And in this case, I think we saw the attackers querying the network for token, the word token. So essentially, in some of these client environments, they'll look for that word and they're looking for the uninstall tokens for like your CrowdStrike or your FireR or the EDR. In this case, it was a smaller client, but they got hit in the uninstalled CrowdStrike on them. And they had no mechanisms to detect the actual uninstall process of it. Essentially, shields down and then ransomware executed and, and so forth. So it definitely seems to be a trend lately. You were saying er- earlier in 2022, some of the earlier shows, you were saying there was a decrease in, in ransomware trends because we saw less on the blockchain. We saw less payments on the blockchain, so it looked like less activity. But it does seem like that is now picking up, like you predicted. You thought ransomware would kind of taper off in the beginning of the Ukraine conflict, then you would see it swing back. And I think now we're seeing that. We're seeing more of ransomware actors exploit now. So is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah, and that's precisely it. We What you're talking about is just before the end of the year, there were reports coming out that ransomware had reduced by 23% in our assessment 
statement was that doesn't make any sense. And like, it makes some sense, but like it it was being presented almost in a, Hey guys, ransomware is going away. And we had to go tell our clients, like, I understand how this looks, but this is not less dangerous. It's not less dangerous. There are a lot of reasons why this could have happened. Some of it was law enforcement activity that had occurred over over the last year. But then some of it also was that focus. A lot of these cyber criminals actually were assisting the Russian Federation against Ukraine. And now they've weaned off of those operations now that it's more gone towards that traditional war front. Um, And we're now seeing an increase because we saw reports that came out that said, man, February was one of the most like month over month, one of the highest levels of increase in ransomware activity that's ever been seen since we've been tracking ransomware. That's it's actually more of a return to baseline. It's not that there's this dramatic spike and ransomware is becoming way more pervasive. It's rather that we're returning back to that baseline that we were used to prior to some of these activities that showed that decrease late in 2022. So the anticipation is that we are going to see ransomware activity remain standard. We may not see a dramatic increase in ransomware activity, but as as you noted with that lockbit incident that we had to handle, of course, it was a publicly known vulnerability. It's been publicly released. The patch exists. It's easy for these operators to go after that. Like they're not going to spend a lot of time developing something bespoke when there's so many unpatched vulnerabilities that are out there. And sometimes it's just because businesses can't keep track of it. They don't have the personnel, they don't have the budget, and they don't have the time. And that's where people like myself come in so we can inform and prioritize and show you really where you need to focus that and just do that little gentle sometimes reminder that you need to go take a look over here because we're watching that those TTPs change and we're seeing this focus because we reported on Fortinet four or five months ago. We were seeing it, it being leveraged. We were seeing the vulnerability develop and those TTPs like the uninstall that you were saying of disabling antivirus and disabling EDR. These are things that we do focus on because that's our job and that's why we partner so well with a lot of these businesses. All right. Aaron, this is a good time to introduce George. I'd love for you to stay on too as well. We can make a dynamic conversation. But George Santos Santos is someone who's got years of experience. I've known from since my time at Ernst & Young. He was our practice partner over there in their cybersecurity and the FSO practice. He was with Accenture for about 20 years. Uh, he really focuses on helping to bring that communication, cover that chasm between the C-suite, the CIO, the CISO, the board of directors. It's awfully complicated up at that level, especially when you're trying to relay cybersecurity risks that we would see in different organizations and how do you relay that up. And George, just great to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. This is a great topic. Yeah. And George, I'm always curious, you spent a lot of time with the executive management suite and the Mm C-suite and so forth. How do they view ransomware and how does that play into continuity in the business? Does It it seems sometimes us us technical people who are focused on the threat don't know if management or the board level, what are they discussing about it? How do they handle it? What are their fears? How can we communicate better from our side to them? And how do we share in this battle space, so to speak? Yeah, I think a lot of the press around ransomware has been on what I'd call the mid caps or the mid tiers or smaller businesses. And in fact, the largest businesses are just as vulnerable to ransomware, maybe not the entire business, but a division, country, location, that sort of thing. And it's something they need to be aware of and be asking questions of their technology leadership. What are we doing about it? What are we seeing? 
and uh, and then networking with it in their peer groups, their peer company groups to see what's going on and uh, are they having a better or worse time uh, than their peers. How much do they actually talk though about what controls are working, what solutions, all that kind of stuff? Or is it more of the business risk? I'm just curious, how does one board member from one company communicate with another one and be able to do it in a meaningful way where they get value? Anyways, I would love to be a fly on the wall to hear how one board member explained cyber risk to another board member at a Fortune 500. You know? Yeah, I think that it's a great question. It stems from how are you best protecting the key assets of your company and what are you doing to measure that and make sure that you're getting better at it, not worse at it, so that in in my book, which is called CyberTax, and we called it CyberTax for a reason, because cybersecurity is a tax on the organization, right? In an ideal world where there'd be no bad actors, you wouldn't you wouldn't need it, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't live in that world, and we're never going to live in that world. And in fact, the threat actors are getting more sophisticated, stronger, wiser, etc. And so we focus on what we call a seven C's methodology, which is really understanding the things that the business does to help or hurt cybersecurity, and then understanding how they can help the CISO and his team improve cybersecurity. I'll start with complexity. We view that as the key aspect of cybersecurity. That is the organization complexity, the technology complexity, the business complexity. Uh, Just referring to the previous topic of patching, Right. Obviously, the more systems you have, the more tight technologies you have, the greater your patching surface area is, and it's difficult to support. Right. And when a company goes and does an acquisition, they're not looking at that sort of technology complexity too much and how that's going to help or hurt your ability to patch and to provide a good level of sound security practices in your organization. I had one company. I worked with who made an acquisition. There was a new technology at the acquisition that wasn't in their patch cycle and they it never got added to it. And that led to a vulnerability that uh, caused a significant breach. Complexity is the key element in reducing your cyber tax, being cyber tax efficient and improving your cybersecurity posture. And CISOs are typically victims of this, right? They're not the ones saying, we're going to add this new system to manufacture X, Y, and Z, or this new capability, or, hey, guess what? I'm going to give the board members iPads, which aren't in our technology footprint, go figure it out. So they're typically the victims of complexity, but the business needs to take responsibility for that complexity and help them out. Yeah. yeah. Would you, you say... Oh, sorry. Uh, George, would you say that there's been a slight change in the culture because of how much media has been around some of these larger breaches that we've seen in ransomware, where now businesses, especially when they do something like an acquisition, do you think that there's more consideration being given to that technology complexity and how that expands their risk footprint? Or do you think that boards are still not really fully understanding and grasping the cyber aspect of what that cyber tax is going to be? Because there's the tax 
at the initial, right? And then there's the tax at the compromise. And I'm sure that's kind of part of what you have to show that balance. But with the Mm -hmm. media attention, has that culture changed or is it still just as difficult to get boards to understand that they pay for the complexity now to save on the compromise later? And in, in my experience, there's two types of companies, those that are more proactive with that, and that's about half of them. And those that are more reactive, they'll pay attention when there is a breach or there is something that, that, that goes on, unfortunately, and they see it as a cost of doing business. Hmm. Yeah, because we a lot of times we do a lot of mergers and acquisitions from the Booz Allen Hamilton side, Ernst & Young, Accenture, you're familiar with all that type mm-hmm. of model. And one of the things you'll notice is they try to bring a project in and the first thing to do to try and cut expenses is to say, let's just keep legacy equipment that they have there. We'll just maintain it, extend the warranted contracts and so forth. And a year or two, we'll look at replacing all that rather than saying, okay, let's take the capital investment now. Let's rip out all the old stuff of this merger that we have. Very little that we keep. Maybe we put that into a legacy pod, but we're going to lay all new desktops, infrastructure, standardized and so forth. That in the future, in the year or two future, makes it so much easier to continue to scale and manage. But instead, you have 15 types of Linux. You have 14 types of switches and routers. It becomes unmanageable for us to be able to put a hardening standard against all network infrastructure devices. And there are three different makes and models. That, that wasn't our decision. Cybersecurity people didn't say, hey, let's throw multiple models at us and see if we can handle it. It was always some business decision above us that we were never able to clearly articulate, hey, you're going to make cybersecurity risk for us a year, two years from now, easily. No one's going to build money in to get rid of this infrastructure. This is a great opportunity to take capital dollars as part of this merger and acquisition and do it right and not end up paying this huge tax in the, in the end of two years. What are your thoughts, George? Yeah, exactly. One of, so another C that we have in our model is capability, right? So if you add new technologies, you add new processes, new controls that aren't native, you've had to expand your capability, right? And so you're thinning out the ability to to do your job well. And then that affects the third C, which is competency, that you're not as competent because you can't focus on the 10 things. Now you've got 20 things to focus on or 50 things to focus on, and you can't be good as good at those things as you once were, given that this one was thrown at you, And but you're charged with keeping it secure. And your point is well taken that when they crunch the numbers, they're looking at how to get the best value out of this acquisition. And a lot of that is keeping legacy systems in place, which, again, drives complexity, drives the cyber tax, drives costs. And thins out, weakens really your team, team's ability to uh, to solve all the uh, the critical security functions. It's interesting. I had uh, right before I left New Orleans to come to Charlotte, I was in, in the MBA course at University of New Orleans, and one of the case studies they were asking how to determine if someone is a good executive or not. Mm-hmm. And the case study is that they had one manager who came in and put no capital investment back into the manufacturing line. There was no preventive maintenance, continued to run it two, three, four years past normal life cycle, invested nothing in it, made a tremendous amount of profit from that. But at the same time, when he left, another manager came in and immediately started and had to invest significantly because the product line, the manufacturing facility was breaking down. 
all the equipment was past its life cycle. All of a sudden, he looks like a horrible executive because he's asking for hundreds of thousands of dollars. The last guy didn't ask for anything. What happened here? The last guy seemed to, to be to run everything. Just, this guy must be doing something wrong. And it's just almost like you're pushing that technical debt into the future. And it's really hard to uh, put our hands around sometimes and quantify it. So I've always wondered what those board members, when they talk about cyber risk, because now I saw the SEC change. You know, Chris Hetner was talking about that on LinkedIn, mm-hmm. about the SEC and how they're going to make changes. And the board needs to have this expertise because I think the board used to be able to throw up its hand and say, I, I don't know, this is technical cyber stuff. I really don't know what they're talking about when they say I need a proxy server and I need this, mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And then this zero trust type architecture, they don't really know how to interpret it. Now there seems to be the same way companies have a V CISO, you have a virtual CISO and it's a fractional mm-hmm. time period that boards are now going to have to have a V CISO equivalent where they're going to have to have some expertise. You either put cybersecurity people on the board itself, or you supplement them with, with consulting in order to be able to help drive some of those decisions. Where do you see it's going to end up? Is the board going to add board members or cyber pros or what are your thoughts? Well, I've seen it several ways, but so when the, when you add a cybersecurity expert to your board, whether it's full-time or part-time, part of the problem that can happen is that then the CISO and this technology board member kind of start having conversations that no one else in the room can understand, right? And so that doesn't help the board manage this cybersecurity risk, right? They just go off. And really what needs to happen is that that... And what we try and do in the book is show, and the CISO can use it to bring business concepts to the board, and the board can use it to, to try and drive concepts to the technology people who are providing the security. But mm-hmm. you want to make sure that the board of directors who you have in there for a reason, right? They're bright, they're, they have different experiences, can participate in the conversation at some level and help them. Uh, understand that. So it's really important that there isn't this sort of off to the side tangent that where cybersecurity gets discussed and no one else can understand it. Mm-hmm. Th- does it make sense to try and put a framework together where you would train board members in these different areas? What is attack surface reduction, threat intelligence, these key areas and how they you ought to see them as outcomes? And that gives them some kind of perspective when they're asking, hey, I saw in these areas, in these types of outcomes, are we doing that? Do I have the same kind of outcome and capability here? One of them was like home protection. One of our clients is a big pharma and they want to protect the executive suite. And how do you tie into executive protection program? How do you look at their Wi-Fi and all the security related to them? And I think there's a lot more focus on that from the board's perspective. I just I wonder sometimes, are we quantifying risk properly to them? And is it not just, are we always, as technical practitioners, always try to find some way to explain it better. But when does it become the responsibility of the board member to say, let me learn this taxonomy of terms and controls and how that relates? I think an ad- analogy is great as far as explaining cybersecurity principles. And mm-hmm. we, I don't know, train them in these principles and, right. terms and get on the same page. And we have a chapter in the book devoted to the threat landscape and who what's out there and how to understand that in, in English terms, not tech terms, mm. to help them. And it's quick read so that it's not some daunting book that they couldn't 
get through uh, and see that. But I've always said that I would like to think that a board member would have a Wall Street Journal understanding of cybersecurity, that they yeah. understand what the big events are, what the key trends are, and that sort of thing. Surprisingly, a lot of them don't. And I'm not sure why that is, but we've got to help them get that Wall Street Journal understanding of cybersecurity, uh, both on the sort of normal threats and patch management and the threat actors and those sorts of things. And then highlight the public breaches that happen and the cost and the disruption of business and uh, you know how those are significant events in a company. It's interesting to me that most companies have at their fingertips and even at the board's fingertips, sales information, financial information, information about the human capital they have. And yet uh, you know, the board maybe is briefed once every six months, four months about cybersecurity, aren't metrics that they're being presented. There aren't measures that they can look at and know week to week, month to month, even day to day, are we getting better at what we're doing or are we getting worse at what we're doing? Do you think it's a translation? Sorry, Josh, right. I'm going to keep jumping on you. you Do you think it's a translation issue? Because we talk about metrics of success, and that is something that like a board's very concerned about. And like when I brief intelligence to a leadership team, to an executive team or a C-suite, Sometimes relating back to the numbers, right? Showing this is how much companies have paid billions of dollars in ransomware mm -hmm. over the last 12 months or something of that nature. Why do we have such a hard time in cybersecurity showing metrics of success? Because there is a quantification of success. There's something that we judge ourselves by. Mm -hmm. What's the problem that we have translating that to a C-suite level? What is it that we're missing? And what's that communication breakdown? So cybersecurity is the unicorn where you can spend infinity and you can still get breached, right? And boards are used to throwing money or people or a consulting firm at a project and getting it solved. And cybersecurity is just not that way. So it takes a different style of communication that the risk is always there. Here we are. We're focused on protecting the things that are most important to this company. And here's how we're going to do that. Here's how you can help me by keeping the business simpler right? and be a partner with me as opposed to just throwing things at me. So it's it gets to that level of communication to make that happen. But it, cybersecurity is just difficult for a board to understand because, like I said, because no matter what you do or spend, you could be hacked. Yeah. And it's interesting, uh, those different challenges and how they now have to navigate it. And we, we do penetration testing reports. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see how the CISOs and the CIOs have to be able to reframe that and how do they position that in some of the reporting and just a lot of that kind of activity and the quantification of it. And it's it just gets really hard. And to the point they some just devolve to terms. It's you have Zscaler. You have Palo Alto. Do you? And it's just if I just throw out a number of different cards there, that one of them sounds like a made a wise decision because someone else might have that. Because you you have people that say if you go with IBM, you never get fired. We're going blue or using the name brands for that, but they still yeah. have these breaches, like you're saying. What are some of the other trends that you're seeing in cybersecurity that you think we should focus on that are not really something that boards are focused on now, but may in the future? I mean, 
part of mine, I could see is just like virtual employees, like AI employees. How do you onboard an AI employee? But uh, just curious your thoughts. Yeah, certainly AI is going to play a big part in cybersecurity in, in terms of being able to call through the millions of events that happen each day at a company and try and figure out which ones to point your best resources to solve. And also, I think in terms of classifying these events as something that's you should focus on or it's just noise, I think AI will help a lot there. The problem is that the bad guys are going to use AI too, right? <laughs> They're going to do more sophisticated targeting, right. more analytics. Uh, analysis of your systems, your business, AI will allow them to get much smarter about how your business works. And I think that is the holy grail of being a threat actor is not just understanding the technology, but understanding the uh, your business, where, where, where are the critical assets held? How valuable are they? How can we get to them? How can we disrupt you? Uh, depending on what our goal might be to make that happen. It was mentioned before by Aaron about patch management. And again, that's something that's so mundane, but so critical. And getting back to my Wall Street Journal example, some, I've been in board meetings where the board talks about, uh, well, there's this sophisticated team in China that's hacking people. And, I'm, mm. and my response is, they're not going to target you because you don't patch your system. So <laughs> if you don't do the basics, no one's going to send the A team when the C team can get through your barriers. No, that makes sense. And I think management too has to understand there is um, there is different philosophies inside of cybersecurity. I've seen it. One more of a compliance type focus that I just want to be in compliance with things like compliance mm -hmm. equals security. And you find out really quickly, no, it is a good way to wrap your mind around different things. And there, it, does, it is a great way of saying that these are some standards that you ought to adhere to. How do you adhere to these baselines and these standards? Uh, that as well as like a tool unicorpia, a cornucopia here, you just throw a tool at it. I'm sure there's a tool to find that and this and somehow... AI will make all these tools talk to each other and it will be seamless. And it seems to fail repeatedly. We have to take step backs. We come into a client site and they would say, we have three types of EDR in the environment. That doesn't help at all having a consolidated capability there because you have three of them. Uh, you have disjointed. I also see probably the worst that's devastating now is poor vendor management when using managed services. So there's three dynamics to detection and response. First one is having an EDR type platform that is on the host. So you have edge level telemetry. You're able to provide anti-malware capabilities, but you're also providing incident response capabilities to your people inside. Really the gold standard nowadays to have EDR. The second one is we need some kind of network intrusion detection system. We need to be able to see IoT devices, Linux systems, things that do not have an EDR product that transfers on the network and that can send traffic outbound. Those are a big threat for a lot of environments. And then the third is the logging. You have application activity of things that happen and logs need to be produced. You need to be able to hunt through those in a post-exploitation type manner. The problem I see some companies, especially bigger ones, is it's a completely disjointed. I'm going to get my IT provider to do firewall management over here in IDS, and I'll get this company to do EDR, and I'll do that one. I'll do Splunk Managed Cloud or something to do that one. No, all three of them do not tie together. There's no pivot point to it. You have no comprehensive defense. 
And it's mostly because of this hodgepodge of vendors that don't work very well together and don't want to give one team access to their infrastructure and vice versa. How do you start to get the board to realize that your vendor, your delivery management model is extremely important, who you use and whether you build internal versus external? How is it best for us to communicate that to board members? So I think it, you take it back to the capabilities you want to have, right? And you want to do those capabilities well. And you need to identify that in order to have EDR, I need a team of five dedicated people, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And making sure that that's going to happen, whether you're sourcing it internally or externally. In my experience, and this is a rule without exception, every client I've ever been to has too much technology and not enough people who know how to use it. Yeah. And it's shocking to me that this is such a universal problem, right? Because people look at Slideware and go to the RSA conference and say, oh, this is the best thing. The best thing is things you use and are really good at using. And not enough people in our world and certainly not enough people who manage our world Pay attention to that. And I think that is something that that as a CISO, if you can communicate that effectively, that here's what we need to be competent at what we're doing, I think that will help you go a long way. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. And Aaron, from your thoughts, we've seen some of the attackers also target board members with phishing, email, smishing, and so forth. I think they have a lot of sensitive information. They would definitely be a target for some of these. Do we have threat actors that target specifically that C-suite? They're mining them on LinkedIn. They're sending them messages and so forth. Are you seeing some of that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're not only just from the cyber criminal standpoint, but even from nation state. There's a lot of social engineering that occurs, especially via LinkedIn. It's actually, it's the worst when it comes to your executive level, because you have the nation state threat actor that might want to conduct cyber espionage, intellectual property theft, something of that nature, or something even more nefarious where they may be actually collecting against you as a person for compromising information that they may be able to leverage. Then you also have your cyber criminals that are going to just try to use you as an entry point because you likely have a good amount of access and a good amount of data that can easily be mined and can be ransomed and then obviously extorted. But then you also get your petty criminals, everything from CEOs who are, you know, their name or their name and certain facts about them that are just sitting on LinkedIn are being leveraged to try to get $25 Amazon gift cards. And so like these, when you have people that are this high up, That's they're it. targeted by $25? No wonder you didn't get anybody. It was only $25. Uh, but we've seen it. We, we've seen it with some of our own leadership team. We've seen it, it messages you. As soon as we spun out, CEO, Chris and Simplar, was targeted with spear phishing the entire company. Somehow they got people's cell phones. There's nothing. They didn't have any security breach on our side. It's just showing that they used LinkedIn as soon as we went live and they started sending messages through LinkedIn. And in many ways, I guess it's an honor. We look like a threat to them. But yeah, it's interesting how they start to get targeted. And the CEO is not asking me to go buy iTunes cards to hand out to employees on mm-hmm. my corporate card. So it's just really, they could get a little more creative with that and what kind of methods that would use to social engineer something. And I wonder too, from a 
executive perspective, George, how do some of these board members get educated in cyber risks? And so other than bringing consultants in, what makes sense? You definitely want to have some consulting uh, people there to help you out, but how do they get the education? I can go to SANS training. I can do a number of things, but is it kind of one of those national director board type organizations that they would train a board member in, in cyber? Or? What I've done at board meetings is I, with permission, target a few of them and show them, hey, here's what I've been able to find in, in, in the wild about you. And here's the message I would put together to target you. And to get you to respond. One thing I've learned is that board members have an inordinate amount of speeding tickets. <laughs> so really uh, sending crafting a message say from the, the state or the locality saying, Hey, you have unpaid speeding tickets. Your license is about to be suspended. We're coming up. They're going to click on that. And so showing them things like that with executives, showing them a message that your child's school is in lockdown. Click here for to go to the parent portal. Everyone's going to click on that. So, the, but you can find out that kind of information just pretty easily, and showing them examples like that in a non-threatening way, and not but using it as a teaching opportunity, I think has been very effective for me. Yeah. Well, that's good. And I think the more they can see what we're dealing with it, a lot of times from a managed detection response, I don't think our customers understand how difficult this is to do, to mm -hmm. analyze different events that occur, thousands of events with different alerts and alarms and tool sets, sure. and to figure out what's happening and to do that in a time period and also get it right. It can't be a false positive and wake everybody up and one's supposed to be. It's got to be the real deal. And how could you miss this triple obfuscated power shell that hit? And what are you doing at night? And so I, I I really hope that board level understands how difficult it is to do this right. And a lot of people, we spend our entire careers working to do this and to find bad quicker, faster, better. But at the same time, it in many ways feels like a losing battle. And it's not because the cyber threat landscape is changing so dynamically. We're used to it changing. It's been doing that for 20 mm -hmm. years. It's our ability to respond to it that kind of hampers us. So, no, you can't fix that this quarter. There's no budget. Can you wait six months to get antivirus or something simple? It's some of those business challenges. And I guess we're business priorities. We're going to onboard this new portal. We plan on getting away from this anyway. Let's not do anything about it now. And then that three months becomes six months, becomes nine months, becomes a year. And then yeah. you continue to have it. And and so forth. So it's just difficult. How do we help support the mission and to be able to drive things forward? Yeah. Killing systems, killing platforms is very difficult. And it rarely happens. It's certainly not in the timeline that someone thinks it'll happen. Yeah. We're seeing two other really big shifts. I want to get your opinion on one is firewall management. Firewall management for long, the longest time has started to really move to network infrastructure people managing that for corporations. It's not cybersecurity people. Cybersecurity people are doing incident response. They're doing detection response. They're not doing firewalls anymore. And they pass that to the network team. And network guys think of a firewall as just a router, just something that passes data that just moves packets. But a security person looks at it as a security tool. How do I stop different ports and protocols mm -hmm. that are going outbound? How do I strip traffic here? How do I do a number of security things? And we've had, out of the 300 plus customers we have over at Deep Seas, we've had just a number of them shift from taking their firewalls away from infrastructure companies and back to security companies. 
So I saw that one as well as there's a shift in security operations. I used to buy a SIM system. First SIM I deployed was 15 years ago. It was security manager for NetIQ. It became Nitro, I believe. It was Novell Nitro after that. And great product, did a lot of things that I needed to, but I would buy the hardware and the software and I would depreciate it over three years. So I'd have a terabyte worth of drive space, no problem. I wanted to log something more. I may have to add some more drives or whatever, but it was a fixed cost and it was depreciated over that time. Now, when you go cloud for everything like Splunk in the cloud or Onyx or anything, now there's a big fat bill for every log source that you ingest in, into the platform. Now I have the bean counters coming at us and going, can you justify every log source you put in there? Do you really need that log? So the security guys go from, let's try and grab everything we can. Mm -hmm. And it, it was really a bad philosophy several years ago. Grab everything we can, throw it into the SIM, and we'll figure it out with use cases off the SIM. And that's failed miserably. We have too much data in it, and we don't have the right use right. cases and so forth. But we have the AWS guys and the finance guys are going, okay, so how do you, can you justify that event? And I'm really having a hard time because we never had to fight those kind of bills. If it was hardware and I depreciated, I wouldn't have to worry about the Amazon bill going up. And when the Amazon bill goes up, it's consolidated bill anyway. It really doesn't break down. Was it my, this log source that did that or something else? So I just see it, the financial and technology models putting a strain in different areas that we never thought of before, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where AI could actually be helpful in terms of trying to sift through those logs and pare down what's important, what's signaling and what's not what's just noise and that sort of thing so i think ai will actually will help alleviate that problem it won't be yeah, tomorrow but it'll happen but again it's getting back to the cost and the, you have to take into account the full cost of moving to the cloud or going offshore or whatever and a lot of people don't do that they look at the numbers that make sense for their business case and that's what they focus on as opposed to the real picture and the long term cost of ownership, total cost yeah, of ownership. Total cost, yeah. And total cost of being in this business and total cost of being in this geography and total cost. Yeah. You got to look at all those things. And even in, from cyber to ITDR perspective, we just had a client that had this massive ransomware episode, right? And so they paid for backup restoration of this platform, but they didn't pay for any infrastructure to actually restore it to. So here they have to quickly acquire hardware and so forth. I see a lot of companies that don't actually step through this, whether it's the disaster recovery process or right. it's the denial of service. I'm the, of the point where, hey, I have a DDoS service here. I actually want to launch a DDoS or I want to actually pull the cables or I want to simulate this. I want to take a real impact to the network. It almost seems it's so rare that they want to take the risk of actually hitting live production. I'm not talking about we should do this during the day. We have the largest yeah. financial impact possible. But at least fail the systems over, fail the firewalls over, pull the power cable. Most disruptive thing that seems to occur is IT outages that are self-inflicted because we never wanted to take the extra step to actually test what it is we put we put in place. How do we get better at that is to me going to be a challenge. Yeah. When I was CTO of Intersections, we actually, because we had very large banks as customers, we had to have a fairly rigorous failover testing policy. And we, every year did a test where we failed over our critical systems and brought them up live and showed that it could be done. Because you're right. If you just simulated or 
don't force a full cut over. You're never going to, you're never going to know what's going to happen in real life. And again, that's an area that's easy to cut from your budget, right? Or easy to not put your best people on because they're focused on other more production related problems. And prime example here too, is that I got an Intel briefing probably from Aaron or one of the other Intel analysts before going meet one of our big clients, CISO for a risk management strategy session we were having with them. And the CISO asked, are we, what are you seeing in ransomware? What's the latest thing that's happening? And I said, well, there was a shift I heard on an Intel call today about attackers who are launching denial of service attacks against companies that did not pay the ransom. So if you refuse to pay the ransom, they're launching additional attacks and make it more painful for you. So mm-hmm. I see that as a trend. I'm just curious, but what is your denial of service capabilities? Do you have DDoS controls? And he said, give, give me that. I'm going to go find out. And the next monthly, when we came up, he said, well, I really want to thank you for bringing that up because we had one on the books. It was stalled out for finance reasons. I reinitiated it. It's starting back up. We're going to implement this. It was like an Akamai solution. And so they started doing that. The three days before the solution was up and live, they got hit like an 80 gig denial of service. Mm. And the infrastructure was in place, but it was not tested, never brought up. The scrubbers weren't initiated. So you had no idea if it was going to work. And now there's so much traffic that's hitting one of their big IT towers. And now this is not a small company. So you're talking about, I don't know, five to 8,000 employees. So not small. And they were just being hammered and they had to get the solution up while this denial of service was happening at the same time. But it took about three, four hours to get live and start scrubbing and restoring of services. But it would have taken three or four weeks if they wouldn't have had that pre-planned. They wouldn't have that project. They had hardware in place at the three major data centers. It yeah. took three, four hours because it was already paid for and the infrastructure was racked and stacked. It just it was never tested and the GRE tunnels established and all that other kind of stuff. But that was one example where a cybersecurity intelligence report led to a discussion with management where we're saying this is where the trends are happening. This is where the enemy is shifting. Are you prepared to handle an attack on that front? And then say, yep, no, I don't know. And to actually be able to mitigate that had a true impact. That's true where cybersecurity had a true impact and threat intelligence to the survival of the IT services for that company. So that's one example I see that really can resonate with board members. Yeah, I agree. And in particular, educating board members that that there are so many automated type of attacks and automated bots that look for vulnerabilities out there. And no matter who you are, you're susceptible to those. And that is kind of baseline. You need to be able to protect from those kind of, I'll call them generic attacks, but attacks that they're poking everybody. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to be the one that they poke through. That they and, poke too much. To you, right? I think a lot of times board members are naive in the fact that, hey, oh, we're this company or we're not named Bank of America. No one's going to come after us. And again, mm-hmm. the bots don't care what your name is, where your location is. An IP they, address, they go after it. They're yeah. going to get you. Yeah. I've told boards before, one board member said, how can we not have any breaches? I said, send everybody home and disconnect all the internet. and Go back to paper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you still would have a breach. Somebody would leave it in the garbage can or trash. You'd still well, have a problem. Yeah. Aaron was Army Intel. Aaron, look at this. We have a big breach from the Pentagon now, right, on social media with all these documents and so forth. And it's what, a 21-year-old National Air Guard 
mm-hmm. guy in Fort Bragg over here. How does a 21-year-old Air Force National Guard guy get access to something that the board of, uh, that the I want to say board of directors, but Joint Chiefs of Staff would have access to? It just it seems to be highly classified for his level. The easy there's a couple of things from a national security standpoint. He has a clearance. He has access. Age isn't part of the clearance decision that's made. You look at it from a national security perspective. They, I had a clearance when I was fairly young. I believe you may have as well. At the same point, also, if I'm not mistaken, he worked in networking and, or at least something in that, in that sphere, because I don't really know this the Air like, Force MOSs. This is like um, Snowden, where he was a sysadmin of the box. He wasn't right. responsible for analysis. He was just the IT guy that had admin rights to the box. That had the data. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe he wasn't in intelligence, but he was in a situation where he, you know, he had a clearance. But a lot of it comes down to it's the same thing that we see on the civilian side: identity access management. So for him to be able to get this stuff publicly onto the internet, there's a few ways that he would have had to have done it. But the most likely way is that he printed them off. He printed these records off, and then he took them home, and then he scanned or took pictures of them. And that's how this happened. Why is this guy able to print through a, what we would call basically a high side printer, something that has a TSCI classification? Nobody ever asked that question because nobody really thought about it. I understand, but it's the same thing that you see if you're, if you work at a company and if you work in the C-suite or something like that, don't feel bad because the United States government didn't ask the question as to why this guy might be able to say, print off classified records. Because some of those records that we saw posted were cell phone pictures taken on his countertop, which means that he printed it on a SCI printer and he took it home. And that happened. And nobody ever asked the question, why did you need to print this report on Ukraine? Why did you need to print this report on signals intelligence collection in South Korea? Cell phones allowed in the skiff. No, he took it home. home. He took the paper home home and and then took a picture of it. So this is gets back to what I tell boards all the time is don't make the same mistakes, make new mistakes. mistakes. And if you're making the same mistake, catch it earlier. But again, we have from Snowden to this guy, it's the same mistake and it's bigger. Yeah. Unfortunately, we ran out of time for the show. George, I want to thank you for joining. I do want you to tell me more about your book real quick, where we can get it. What's the name? All that real quick. Do you have you have the book with you? There we I go. I do. Yeah. It's called Cyber Tax. Cyber Tax. Uh, you can get it at Amazon or anywhere you find books. It's coming out April 20th. April 20th, Cyber Tax. I'm going to get a copy of it, George. And Lisa, I can at least get it autographed from you. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd be happy to do that for you. Aaron, thanks for the briefing. I appreciate your time. George, good talking to you, sir. And everybody, stay secure. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.